Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more story, less time, and still less ukulele. On this episode, we are going to hear from one of my favorite people in the world, Mr. Chip Walton of Choppin' Brew slash Brewing TV fame. And we're going to talk a little bit about Chip's history of brewing, where he started with Northern Brewer, and how he kind of stayed extract forever until he discovered Brew in a Bag. And then we're going to walk through Chip's techniques for how he does that magical thing he does in a bag. So, sit back, grab a beer, relax, but first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. This episode, I'm talking to one Mr. Chip Walton of Chop and Brew fame, and we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, the way that everybody seems to be starting how to brew all grain nowadays, brew in the bag. So, Mr. Chip, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? What's up? I'm Chip Walton of Chop and Brew, like Drew just said. (laughs) (laughs) I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I currently work at American Public Media for the podcast, The Splendid Table, but I have worked at Summit Brewing Company uh, in the past as a social media nerd. I used to work at Northern Brewer Homebrew Supply and doing brewing TV, so I'm kind of always involved in media and beer food. And now, of course, you have your own little channel out there on the tubes. Chop and Brew, why don't you tell the audience about Chop and Brew real quick, just in case they don't already know. Yeah, Chop and Brew is just kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a show that looks at food, cooking, homebrew, craft beer, 
it leans much more towards the home brewing than the craft beer. We bring in the food element, whether that's just about food or how it relates to beer. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of traveling to it, but for the most part, it's produced kind of in and around the kitchens, garages, and basements of a small group of home brewers here in St. Paul. It's instructional by accident. It's supposed to be entertaining more than anything. And then along the way, people seem to be getting inspired and educated. As hard as we try not to educate anybody, they seem to pull it out of there. Well, I'm just trying to figure out what the educational lesson is behind the one chip challenge. (laughs) Always have milk on hand. And don't give it to Bob. That was a pretty brutal show watching you guys do that. It was fun. It was really cool. That was nice of those guys to send those super hot chips. But yeah, they're purely novelty. I wouldn't sit there and eat those. They've got ghost pepper ones that are hot enough on their own. But that was totally insane. Gimmicky, good fun. I don't think everybody looked like they were having fun at the time. But <laughs> that's beside the point. You described you got a pretty long uh, pedigree and you going all the way back to the Northern Brewer days with Brewing TV, but also working at Northern Brewer. How did you get started brewing? I started brewing in Austin, Texas in 2007. I was actually thinking about that today or this week, how I'm coming up on my 10-year anniversary of brewing. So I actually went back in my brew log and I'm going to try to rebrew the first like three or five beers that I brewed exactly on the day that I brewed them. So sometime in late November... I will brew the first time of ever going back to the American brown ale that I did. Whether or not I'll do them as extracts like they originally were is a whole other thing. But um, So I started in Austin after being into beer for quite a while, and I was in a TV job, and I ended up field producing a story in a guy's kitchen about homebrewing, and was just instantly suckered into it. It was just so amazing to watch all those processes and to know and to taste that final product that tasted so much like a real beer. So brewed, I only lived in Austin for about a year while brewing, but for that short time teamed up with the zealots down there, learned a lot and tasted a lot and then moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul and continued to brew. And um, community here is just kind of bonkers between multiple clubs. And at the time you had Midwest and Northern Brewer, both in town, you know, where some people don't have a store within a hundred miles of where they live here. You, you basically had like two shops fighting, splitting the metro. And it was a great time to be just getting beyond that first stage of being a beginner into like, well, what What's next and what kind of people are brewing around me and what are they doing? And, you know, you've got your your Kurt stock and your Piots and your people that have just been kind of on a three-peat of St. Paul Homebrewer Club of the Year. So it was really, it was kind of overwhelming as well as inspirational there. Do you remember off the top of your head what those first three recipes were that you brewed? Um, yeah, I think I can. If I don't, I have the log like right here, but I know the first one was an American brown ale, the Austin Homebrew Supply Extract Kit with steeping grains. I believe the second one, they had a kit called Texas Kolsch, and I named it Wild Hair for my brother. I kind of brewed it. I think he bought me the kit mm-hmm. or a gift certificate, so I named it after him. He's got crazy hair, complete opposite of me. (laughs) And then I believe the third one was either an Irish red, which was the first time that I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff in it and had coriander and an Irish red. Or it was this um, imperial stout extract that was the first time I ever, you know, it's the beauty of that first year is like every batch 
you're learning that thing that so many other people already know. So that Imperial Stout, I remember brewing it. I called it past midnight because it took like way into the night. And then I come home from the Kite Festival at Zilker Park, and that thing is swole like a wine barrel. Like we're talking about a five-gallon bucket in our like carpeted apartment in Austin. And I was like, I think I'm about to have one of those disaster stories that I've read about. So I got it onto our porch, Jimmy rigged a blow off tube out of like racking cane tubing just in time. And that thing spit out foam for like 30 minutes. I probably lost a gallon of beer. But in some order or another, those are the first four brews. So, yeah, it'd be cool to maybe go back to them as complete extracts, just learning with what I've learned about, you know, how to make an extract taste as good as it can, or maybe just scale those up to brew in a bag or scale them up to all grain. That Imperial Stout, I would probably actually all grain, but those other three might be good brew in a bags. But that should be something I do to celebrate like my 10 year anniversary. Your 10 year brew anniversary. Yeah. I think I'm coming up in two more years. It will be 20 years. Man, more power to you. Yeah, well, apparently I found a hobby that's stuck. <laughs> you make it up to uh, Minneapolis. You've done your extract batches. Where do you go from there? Do you do you start into a cooler or a kettle with all grain, or did you stay extract for a good long while? I stayed extract for a good long while. You know, working at Northern Brewer just afforded me all these opportunities to be around people doing all of the stuff that I wish I had the gear or the know-how, you know, being there with Dawson specifically, but there were a couple of other really rad brewers kind of behind the scenes. So I kind of really more scratched that itch by just being around them and documenting it. I started inheriting pieces though. When you work at a place like Northern Brewer, there's an excellent scratch and dent collection or the red tag shelf as we used to call it. So from that scratch and dent kind of area you start to inherit a kettle or you inherit a cooler or you inherit a kegging i actually i would say out of extract kegging was that next step that i got into before i got into a more advanced method of brewing and it was a big step for me and it was caused all kind of anxiety and multiple trips to the hardware store. So the first time I ever all grain by myself was honestly, it was towards the end of working at Northern Brewer. When I worked at Northern Brewer, I kind of enjoyed my spot as the extract guy on brewing TV, whereas Dawson was pretty much all all grain unless he was trying to prove a point. And Keeler had kind of discovered brewing a bag, which we'll talk about. He's kind of my brewing a bag, whatever, Yoda, I guess you could say. So I kind of just always did the extract almost as like to make sure that somebody was doing it. But then towards the end, I inherited 10 gallon cooler. Um, and that is really the way I learned what little bit about all grain brewing on my own. And it was a well, it's a beautiful cooler. I'd like to do an episode about it. It's got Keeler on it. It's got Dawson. I think Keeler inherited it from Dawson and gave it to me. So it's got like all these got a lot of miles on it a lot of mashes but i've probably only used it a half a dozen times because once i found brew in a bag i kind of really was attracted to it now i only all grain if it's really more about just like i really want to enjoy this day or i've got you know like the sammy claws i can't shortcut that like that is something that like it's going to fill that thing up and you're going to get four gallons and that's what you get so now how did you get into uh, brew in the bag you know it was around that time I guess that would have been 2011 when everybody was just talking about it. It was like the cover story of, of all the magazines 
that month or two and uh we really just were like all right as brewing tv we have to kind of tackle this subject because it's timely and it really worked specifically for jake at the time between his other hobbies and just wanting kind of like really to simplify his own process so um for the sake of the show and for the sake of his own experimenting he really dove in um with the help of you know some resources and everybody from dawson to these magazines like i said so videotaping him doing three or four of them is where i was just like holy crap this is this is all grain this is kind of no apologies all grain brewing you know i'm sure the debate continues on some of the the finer details that you're missing out on. But by and large, it's just, it was, it was kind of an eye opener. So watching Jake within that process and watching fans of the show react to it was very eye opening. That was so cool about it. Like all of a sudden, even though there were all these articles being written and this, that, and the other thing who could have claimed authority to some degree, like Jake kind of got a lot of credit because Brewing TV's popularity, I think, put him doing it in a much wider field than the magazine. So all of a sudden, like, Jake was kind of like the king of brewing a bag. So it was it was a good time to be alive, man. It was a good time to be documenting brewing a bag come up. How'd you guys start with brewing the bag? Because, I mean, now, obviously, these days you can go out and there are companies out there that will sell you nice bags. You know, what did you guys do in those first couple of runs? Things that we did became what Northern Brewer, we were in the marketing and the product development side. So, essentially, those were the very early steps of Northern Brewer deciding to put out three-gallon brew-in-a-bag kits. We did the video. We did a DVD beyond the Brewing TV episode. You know, we really kind of like tried to get on it once we kind of dialed it in. I don't know really how much there was like testing five versus three. I think we knew for the people we were trying to convince to get into it, which was either extractors that wanted to take that step without the equipment or maybe the all grainers who were on the verge of giving up the hobby because of the time and equipment. The flip side of that, we went with three gallon because you could basically do low gravity beers still in your five gallon kettle. And I believe the first step was really we took like the top five kits from Northern Brewer, the top five sellers, and just made them. I think that's what we did. So it was like, it would have been like caribou, slobber, probably a Kolsch. I think Dawson also made up a couple of exclusive kits that you could only get as the brew in the bag to also incentivize people getting into it. But, you know, I believe Dawson in the end was probably behind more of the nuts and bolts of like, you know, it's one thing to like experiment and put a video out and then just say, hey, remember, we're not telling you this is the only way to do it. But once you start packaging something to come with a one sheet of step by step, it kind of requires the focus and the Zen like qualities of someone like Michael Dawson to really dial it in. We tried to make low gravity beers easy to achieve without buying a bunch of new equipment. You know, we basically, I think we suggested like a big old muslin bag or more mesh strong and a strainer even or something like that. And, you know, a stick thermometer, if nothing else, because at that point it is way more about being comfortable with reading and adjusting temperature as need be because you're no longer just get it to boiling and put in a bunch of extract. Brewing the bag is a technique that I think first developed out of Australia. And since it came out of a Commonwealth nation, I 
it's no surprising to me. It's basically treating all grain brewing like you're making a giant cup of tea. So instead of trying to pull the liquid away from the grain, you're pulling the grain away from the liquid by having it in a big mesh bag. Yeah, and I do, I guess we could just go kind of right into it. I mean, I do a little bit of hand sparging, and I've heard, I actually hear more often than not of people doing at least some kind of rinse. And it's not, mine's not very anal or even calculated, but I get some 170 Fahrenheit water and I use like a Pyrex and I just do a couple of pour overs. Um, but one thing I do, I realized early on when I was doing five gallon batches that this was really heavy. It's a lot of grain. So my biggest cheat that I can suggest to someone, my biggest hack is go to your hardware store or like an outdoor supplier, buy a clean grill grate that you would put on like an 18 inch Weber and keep it only for this purpose. So you don't get like burnt steak bits and pieces of uh, bacon wrapped jalapeno. But this is so when you pull the bag out to drain it, slide that grate over it and put the bag on top of that. Because at that point, you can walk away from it while it drains or you can sparge it. But the toughest part early on was people were like, it's a bear. You know, you either need somebody else to help you hold that big grain up. Or I've seen a lot of pulley super smart ideas where people basically crank it up and out of there and then let it drip drain as they kind of start to add heat and do their pre-boil routine. Yeah, let's actually go at the beginning of the process, right? Because, I mean, you are talking, like, how much do you normally do? Just three gallons or are you normally doing five gallons? Three. Like, my whole, (laughs) I said my whole goal for this year, but now that we're a third of the way of the year, through the year, I really haven't done much towards this goal other than buy a bunch of stuff. I am really at a point where I want to just brew super small scale and way more frequently. So I have, I just bought a couple of those gallon and a half glass fermenters. Last year, I got a couple of two and a half gallon kegs that I think are super awesome. At this point, I'm kind of a three gallon guy, unless there's a reason I'm brewing it, whether it's to split it or if it's for an event. I don't go into five gallons a whole bunch anymore, or I don't plan to. Okay, I'm going to try to brew some five gallons for homebrew con. But so aside from that, yeah, I'm And again, that's partly because I want the flexibility of doing it inside or outside. And I'd rather be doing it outside, period, for multiple reasons. Bring it to a boil a lot faster. You're actually outside enjoying, but the winters here aren't super awesome outside. So um, I like to be able to do it, you know, in two or three hours, three or four hours on a stovetop. Well, so we're at a three gallon uh, batch size. And I normally think, I usually think of a five gallon batch as being somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds of grain. So scale that back appropriately. So you're looking at six to six to nine. Yeah. Pounds. Yeah. And so six, nine pounds, you, you have a five gallon kettle you said earlier that you use for this. Now, what do you use for a bag? Uh, man, I don't know what it's called, but it is just a, it might be a wine. It might be a great pressing bag, um, which is to say that they do have to be replaced every so often. Those aren't the most permanent. I really want to get one of these custom-made bags that I've seen a couple of people have that come like even with the handle grips that you can. But yeah, I I think I use kind of like a bigger version of not quite as flimsy as a muslin bag, but definitely not like the hot bags that we all know that you can use for years on end. And it's pretty big. It looks like a giant sleeping bag. So you line the kettle with that. You get your water up to what you would, just for an all-grain batch, what you would consider your strike water, which is to say some degree hotter than the mash temp you eventually want to even out at just because it's the same thing as all grain. You're about to dump a whole bunch of 
potentially cold to room temperature malt and bring that water temp down. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of the same concerns you got to have there for the first couple of steps of all grain, which could be having hot water on hand to help make up a difference or a wart chiller already on standby in case what you need to do is bring it down without adding a bunch of water and diluting it. So that's the one part that I find isn't super simple because it's, you know, you want to hit that temperature from there on out. It's very important that you have done that first step correctly. Beyond that, it gets a little easier, but that's kind of, if there's an anxiety point to the whole somewhat simple process, it's still right there. That's the kind of thing that you come in and dial in on over time, right? You start to, just like I know with my cooler, that I use yeah. that I need to have the strike water 12 degrees higher than the eventual mattress I want to be at. And that will float right in. Yeah. Again, some people would argue, I think thin mesh, thick mesh, mm-hmm. whether or not it means as much if you're doing brew in a bag, cause you're not going to sparge it and do all this other stuff later. I think you want to make sure you're going to get a decent yield, whether it's the yield you thought you were going to get or just enough to justify having been out in the garage for three hours. So to me, the, thinner isn't isn't necessarily bad in this case as as much as a lot of straight up all grainers probably don't like a thin mesh because you want to make sure you're getting it out and you're not having to dump three gallons over it because at that point you might as well have just got a cooler and a sparge arm now let's go back and talk about like how much of a how thin of a mesh the mesh ratio are we looking at here i mean we talk in the past about like most all grain done in a cooler you know like people look at that oh i want about a quart and a half to uh, 1.3 quarts per pound and then some of us batch spargers are like, eh, 1.67 quarts per pound is fine. 1.75 quarts. Let's go for it. Whatever equalizes your volumes. What do you normally look at? I think it's more in that 1.75. And somebody could maybe tell me why I should maybe not do that and maybe top off at another point or just go for less yield, aim higher. But yeah, it's generally pretty that is the unfortunate thing. It will cool off fairly quick if it's outdoors and it's cool. Like I We'll have to goose it sometimes with heat, but to me, I want to make sure I'm getting enough of that juice. I want the quantity of work to be correct more than any consistency problems. Like, obviously, I don't want it super, you know what I'm saying? I don't want it looking like water with pieces of wheat floating around in it, but I feel like it's definitely thinner and more soupy than mashy and clingy. Mm -hmm. All right, we got the water heated in the kettle. We've got a bag. Uh, you have obviously a whole bunch of crushed grain. I've heard various ways that people try and introduce the grain into the bag and the bag into the water and, you know, make sure everything gets hydrated. What, what do you normally do? Do you, do you have to do anything funny? Like, I mean, are you putting the bag in the kettle and then pouring the grain into the bag and stirring it up as it's going? Or do you just have it all dunked in the bag and just go, get in there, get in there and get wet? <laughs> No, I've never seen anybody or heard of anybody do that. I didn't know that was a thing. No, I definitely line the kettle. I'll, uh, I might use some like clamps or clips to kind of in three spots or four spots, kind of make it like a corner just to make sure. Cause when that grain goes in there, it will start to collapse on itself a little bit. So especially if it's just like seven pounds for like a four and a half, 5% beer, I'll just do it maybe in two dumps and then just give it really good stirring like you would for any all grain. Like I said, it's usually a little bit thinner. So you're swiping through that mash pretty intensely and breaking up dough balls and making sure everything's wet. Yeah, get it all and then cover it 
like you would, you know, that's a little more difficult because you do have a bag. But at that point, I take the clips off and use the lid as the clamp. And like I said, if it's not summertime, if it's any other time than summer, I'll probably have to come back and goose it, which usually I'm not too also concerned about if it's later in the process because I start to just think of that as a very slow ramp up to a kind of mash out. Like I will kind of do a mash out with Bruna bag, not very anally or calculated once again, but I will, I'll bring it up and then let it kind of hover around 170 for like 10 minutes before I pull it out just to kind of lock in whatever reactions are going on. I don't know why I do that, but you're going towards boiling anyway. So you might as well leave it in for a minute. Well now, and when you're, when you're doing that ramp, are you in there with the spoon keeping the grain moving or do you just figure, nope, screw it. It's fine. I will kind of grab it all into one big knapsack and I'll, I'll try to lift it off the bottom, not 100%, but it's kind of bouncing, I would say. It's like hopping. <laughs> it's doing a little like moonwalk on the bottom. I don't want it to be sitting right on the bottom. I've never seen that go wrong, but I can only imagine that it could go wrong, just like anything scorching on the bottom. So if I do that step as it's heating, I will try to relieve a little bit of the pressure off the bottom and some of that, what do you call it, contact. And then if I actually kill the heat to let it hang out there, I will drop it back. Well, so it sounds like to me that you've invented a new idea behind mash hopping. About mash hopping, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, terrible joke. Yeah, all I can think of is a bunny rabbit. Bounce, bounce, bounce. And it feels like when you're in a dream and you're like, can't actually run away from something, but you're kind of doing this like spaceman hop away from tragedy or trouble. You're like, why? Yeah. And then I pull that sucker out and throw it on top of a grill grate. <laughs> Are you having to worry? Like, I mean, is the grain going to, or is the bag going to try and sploosh over? Have you ever had that happen where you like, you know, put it on top of the, the grill grate and it just goes. No, you gotta, you gotta sit there and kind of mold it into somewhat of a circle because yeah this bag for the most part is hot and floppy it's yeah it will like flop to a mass larger than your diameter of your kettle so you kind of have to for a while there pile it on top of itself and and make sure it's cool before you walk away maybe like tie not a a real knot but enough of a knot that kind of keeps it into i guess a bean bag uh, a bean bag of malt (laughs) you could say just don't lay on it yeah Hot, hot, hot bottom. You want it to kind of, you definitely don't want it to trip over the edge of the kettle, both for losing it and for like cooking onto the side. So I actually thought once upon a time, I would, um, I would try to find something, maybe like cut a cross section out of a plastic barrel or a grill. You know, a lot of smokers kind of come with that middle ring that's basically just this giant metal ring. I thought about what if I put it into there, kind of like put it inside of this, uh, essentially a giant cookie cutter so it couldn't go anywhere. And I never really followed up on that idea. But now that I'm talking about it, you know, you could cut a five gallon bucket in half and use the part with the two open mouths to kind of, yeah, keep that thing in some kind of form. And now you definitely aren't worried about walking away from it and having grain spill out on your floor or worse yet, we're spilling down the side of a recently boiling kettle. My nightmare would always be grain going into the work. I've had that happen the first time I realized that these great press bags were not as permanent as i had hoped was it actually got uh it kind of started to it kind of started to um tear you know like pantyhose might it basically got a run and next thing i knew it had dropped like a good 
two cups of grain that I had to like run through and go get a, a mesh strain to fish it out with. Don't mind me. I'm just panning for grain. <laughs> exactly. Well, and this is also, I think, the step when you see a lot of people, or I should say a lot of the more gear-heady type people who have rigged up A-frames with like ladders and pulleys, or they have a pulley or a winch, and they use that to kind of do the, nope, no great for me. I'm just holding the bag up. But then to your point earlier, if you're doing like a one-gallon batch, you can just use like a metal sieve to hold the bag on the kettle. Yeah. You know, some, something really simple. But the great sounds like a really good idea idea just for that now how long do you let the bag drain for do you have a time for it or are you just watching go drip 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 okay it's slow enough no when it's sitting on top of that grill grate like i said i'll do maybe five or six two cup pyrexes full of 170 just enough to kind of at least feel like i'm trying to do my best to get more sugar out of it and then so i don't really do a time i just kind of do that rinse and then the kettle at that point has been bumped up to a trying to achieve boil so there's other things i'm starting to do getting other things ready maybe weighing out first hop so it might sit up there for 10 15 minutes just kind of hanging out there's also the other big question that seems to cause controversy do you squeeze the bag sir uh i used to it's really hot you know what i'm saying it's kind of not comfortable like that's why i rinse it i feel like i'm doing the due diligence to get that extra little bit of sugar but i have in the past with like Blickman gloves and uh, yeah I've I've listened to and believed enough people who have said it's it's not the problem that we were all told from the beginning it was so but I don't now just because it's hot it's hot yeah and I figure that sparge is that's me going that one that half an extra mile to feel a little bit better about it <laughs> but I don't I don't I'm definitely not an anti bag squeezer the whole squeezing thing there's a lot of old wives tales and folklores about the idea that oh no don't don't squeeze the mash don't uh, don't don't manhandle it because you'll squeeze out tannins yeah tannins. Well, you don't squeeze out tannins tannins are extracted by a chemical process where the ph is at the wrong level now i have heard other people try and update that to talk about you know possibly squeezing out lipids and other things out of things like oats but i think you have to be andre the giant in order to do that <laughs> All right. I mean, once you're at that stage, you've done your rinse, you get the grains into compost, you're you're brewing just like anybody else, whether you're doing extract or a batch sparge or a fly sparge or a monkey sparge or... <laughs> What's a monkey sparge? I don't know. Ask the monkey. Oh, okay. Good. I was like, whoa, what did I, what did I miss? <laughs> yeah. It's at that point, it's simple and, you know, you've got a little bit less cleanup as far as coolers or, you know, false bottoms that have pieces of malt kernel wedged in them. If it's a reusable bag, you blast that out. I turn it inside out and blast it with a hose from the inside out. And then I leave it up to hang either in the basement or in the garage, bring it to a boil and treat it like a regular beer. So at that point in time, you have what, like four gallons of wort in, in your kettle. You're boiling for an hour and bring it down to about three, right? Right. Easy peasy. All right. We talked a couple of your tips, you know, like your, your grill grate being the big one. Do you have any other things that you think people should pay attention to or try to do if they're doing brew in the bag? I'm a big fan of no matter what method you're doing of having backup water that is 180 to maybe even like fresh off of boiling. I don't know. I just, there's always seems to be reason to do that because you can cool things down 
fairly quickly, but it's really hard to warm something up. And kind of like you said, maybe you don't want to sit there and do the moon bounce off the kettle and, and even like introduce the heat. Maybe you just want that, that goose of some water. So that's one thing I've kind of done since early on because I got burned with it enough times where I'm like, crap, what I need is like two more cups of boiling water. Um, so I always throw in like a gallon soup pot on the stove and just have some water hanging out um, at that temperature. I always argue that there is no such thing as too much hot water in, in the brewery. No, that's why breweries have giant, like, 100-barrel tanks full of it at all times. When I'm done sparging for the day, I'll go and I'll refill – well, not refill, but I'll go put a couple more gallons in the HLT and reheat it just so I have it for cleaning purposes, rinsing purposes, for some other purpose. But, yeah, a little bit of extra hot water always goes a long way on a brew day. True, true. Yeah, besides that, I don't know. I think we kind of – I think I did most of my tricks all right. organically. All right. So without any other tricks, I mean, any, any other sort of things that people should watch out for? Like, I know when brewing the bag first came up, there's a lot of like grumbling, grumbly, growly stuff about it from, you know, traditional brewers who are like, that's not real brewing. You're going to get too many particles in the, in the beer. Your, your beer is going to taste funny. And I think a fair amount that's been disproven. But do you think there's any places where, Brewing the bag doesn't work quite as well, for instance. I mean, you had talked earlier about the Sammy Claus slash Falcons Claus type idea, you know, where you're making that big beer. But any place else where you think people ought to maybe stop and go, hmm, maybe not that? If you've got mash steps, I'm sure you could do it, but that's just going to be that much more turning on a flame, keeping a bag off the bottom, putting it back on, doing it two more times. So if you're mash stepping, it's not a decoction friendly process, probably. So whether or not that seems to be picking on loggers, it does seem that a lot of things that I would do for a logger, I might just go all grain on that and kind of use that as my opportunity to go straight nerd. High gravity beers, period, given the weight limit that you want to hold or even put into this bag, and it may not be worth it to try to do, you know, granted, We've all seen the Sammy Claus, for example, recipes where you're really dosing it with a bunch of dry malt extract anyway. So, you know, you you could look at it as a giant partial mash. But I think the sweet spot for brewing a bag is definitely like four and a half to six and a half percent beers, ales, straightforward, uh, single mash temp. You just I don't know. You know, I think the further you get away from a basic beer, the better off you might be trying it all grain because clearly you want to be able to control more of the process the more um, specific a beer gets beyond, hey, I just want a balanced beer with a little bit of hop and some good malt flavor to it. Well, now, of course, we're going to get a ton of emails from people going, oh, you've never tried my Pilsner that I made with brew in the bag that impressed the brewmasters at Stella Artois. Yeah, no, I believe it, too. I just, I've never done one. I could probably do one and be like, oh, crap, I, I should never say that ever again. Whoops, I've been talking where I shouldn't have. Before uh, before we leave the talk about brew in the bag, and we get into just a, a collaboration of sorts, Any, anything else that you want to tell people about brewing a bag, brewing, life? The universe, everything. No, I'm I'm good. I I like it. I like brewing a bag. It um it definitely made for a while there. I was brewing a lot more because of it. Mm -hmm. I don't brew less now because of it. I just brew less now because there's less time. But hopefully, I'm going to fix that this year. 
So in other words, you feel like brewing the bag it really enabled you to take the next step up and, you know, continue having fun and continue brewing. And like you said, you're doing one of your all grain brewing a bag batches on a three gallon scale in three to four hours, right? Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good turnaround time in order to be able to uh, brew out a beer. Not everything has to be in the five gallon range. You know, I know there are plenty of beers I've brewed where I go, I have five gallons of this. I'm not sure I'm happy about that idea, but let's talk about a beer that you were happy to have. You know, the three gallons that you had and probably had wanted some more. And that was your uh, king cake. Uh, recipe. Oh, yeah, yeah. To tell people who aren't from somewhere around the South, what the heck is king cake? It's kind of like a circular cinnamon roll that gets served during Mardi Gras season, carnival season in cities like New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama, where I'm from. And it's just, it starts to show up at office parties and at home and uh, just about anywhere you go. It seems like there's a king cake just hanging out with some paper plates and some Mardi Gras beads draped over it. Super buttery. It's got a filling in it and then it's usually covered with frosting and all sorts of different colored uh, crazy sugars uh, green purple and gold right for mardi gras right yeah and there's a baby inside the idea is whoever gets the slice with the baby plastic toy baby not a real baby they have to buy the next king cake yep baby jesus means you buy the cake baby jesus i bit baby jesus head off <laughs> Happy Mardi Gras. Well, and so the reason why I know about the king cake ale recipe was because I'm sitting here one day at home and I just get a random email uh, from you asking, hey, how would you do some of this? Yeah. You're one of my like go-tos if I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I better ask Drew Beecham about it. Yeah. You, you know, if you're coming to the point when you're asking me, you're in trouble. <laughs> Tell people, what'd you want to make as a recipe and, and how'd you get there? The idea was we wanted to go for something that had some residual body. It wasn't going to be bone dry. Um, we wanted the cinnamon component. We wanted a little bit of citrus because there can be lemon or orange peel or essence, however they get it. So we kind of decided to go for like an English golden that wouldn't be super attenuated. So we used, um, can't remember which yeast. Did we use the... You used the 1968 London ESB. Yes. We had golden naked oats. We had a little bit of pills for toastiness, the Barca pills. Well, I can actually read the recipe to you if you want. Yeah, hit it up. Two row? Now, uh, th three gallon brew in a bag at 1058 with a final gravity of 1018. So you achieved your goal of not being too dry. You have listed here five pounds of Barca pills, one pound of flake wheat, a half a pound of golden naked oats. And then uh, 0.33 pounds of aromatic. Mm, yeah. And the aromatic's giving you the toast. Oh, is it? You think more than the Barca pills? No, well, I mean, the Barca pills is definitely going to give you a bready thing, but aromatic's toasty all to hell. Okay. And then we had lemon drop hops, which obviously have this huge lemon drop component. And then we used organic lemon peel that I got from Summit because they used to use it in their session IPA. And then the cinnamon. So it ended up, the one complaint I got from people was that for a beer inspired by a cake, that it's still finished drier than they would have thought, or at least not as sweet balance. So I think my propensity towards dry beers kind of shone through, even though I didn't necessarily want it to. So I was thinking if I were to rebrew it, which I definitely want to, I would either mash a little higher, or maybe we would introduce even, I was talking to a brewery down in Louisiana called Mudbug. And they actually um, experimented with using lactose in their king cake ale this last year. So, but a couple of people are like, you know, I don't want it to the point of gimmicky sweet, mm -hmm. like a mini donut beer or something. But right. they definitely are like, this is pretty 
bitter for something named after a dessert. Drop some more of the bittering hops out of the back end and maybe a little lactose. I mean, lactose doesn't add a ton of sweetness, but it does add a ton of body and that that might help. Yeah, I think the mash temp and the hop is probably a smarter place to start. Would you say that the king cake is uh, typical of your brewing style or what do you more typically brew? I would say that that's kind of typical, whether part of me wants to say that because I'm prone to throwing kind of eccentric ingredients into beer or I'm prone to brewing inspired kind of by something. So it could be a much more simpler beer, but chances are I'm brewing it in tribute to a band or for an event or, you know, someone today actually posted on my Facebook page. They're like, I remember this line from the first ever Chop and Brew. It said, find something that inspires you and brew to it. And this guy had brewed an oaked mild saying that it seemed like something that would have been in um, one of the Zelda games, like at one of the like taverns inside of Zelda. I kind of brew like that, you know, an Oak Mild isn't the craziest beer, but this guy was like, I could see some elflings drinking this kind of like, and that really made me think of John Palmer's Belladonna Toque, which he brewed basically inspired by what would the session beer in Lord of the Rings have been. <laughs> Here, drink this. It's dangerous. So, yeah, I don't brew much. I've never really brewed much to be like, oh, man, I need to perfect the American brown ale. Or I need, to me, it's, you know, there's plenty of beer out there. There kind of always has been since I brewed. Um, that whole, I brew what I can't find has never been an excuse for me. You know, brewing in 2007, it's not like living in Austin, Texas. I was stuck with three options of beer. So it's kind of always been almost more on that culinary side of, well, what will happen if we put this in or we do this or we just do it because there's a, you know, a Swedish holiday party coming up and we're going to do a Svagsdrika, which isn't the craziest beer on the planet, but it goes with the theme. It goes with the story. Yeah, you're, you're, you are a story and culinary dream type brewer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's very much what I am, which is, I think, part of the reason why I, why I love you so much, buddy. Oh, man. I love you too, Drew. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of storytellers, I guess, in a weird way, which makes sense because we have podcasts and shows and we interview people. But I, I just chalk that up to being obsessively strange. <laughs> I love I love having cables and batteries on me at all times. Well, hey, Chip, thanks so much for taking the time to to talk to us about Brew in the Bag. I mean, obviously, it sounds like coming from your point of view, Brew in the Bag is no small slouch. It's not weak tea, and it is a great way to help you uh, either step up your brewing game or keep your brewing game going when you're running short on time and actually perfectly fine for making beer for whatever reason you want to. Yeah, I think just like any method, you'll find a way to start getting overly obsessive about the smaller points of it. Like it's definitely, it's, it's, it's no excuse to just like sit back and start drinking at the beginning of the brew day. You know, um, if you're the kind of person that just needs to perfect and needs to have something to uh, worry about, it's still there. Definitely. It's still there. This is not like, I'll stop right there, but it's not like just add water and you got beer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not training wheels, but you know what? It's, it sure beats all of the crazy complication that other people are going through for some of their techniques. If that's what you're there for, 
if what you're there for is making making the beer, great. If you're there for the more complicated process, then go for the more complicated process. It's what's wonderful about beer making. Malted barley, as Denny often says, wants to become beer. We're just here to help it. <laughs> it's true, man. It's it, it wants to be beer so bad. I think this episode deserves a little bit of a, a chop and brew closeout. Why don't you give us your, your show motto there, buddy? Chop for chop, brew for brew. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of Brew in the Bag as given to you by Mr. Chip Walton of Chop and Brew. Uh, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., or yeah, even weird people I should talk to, like Chip Walton, you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can also reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or me at drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew form out there known to mankind. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on iTunes, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky, and this would be where Denny would say, brew experimentally. Brew experimentally.